Welcome to Two Psychologists, Four Beers. We're going to uh, cheat a little bit today um, in that Mickey's going to do a fireball shot before he starts drinking any beers. And we're going to be drinking more than uh, more than four beers, probably, because today... Well, so my assignment was uh, to get Molson Canadian to celebrate our Canadian heritage. That's right. But uh, the beer store, which is where you have to go in Ontario uh, to, to get beers, it's just like government sanctioned it's not government run right it's actually ridiculous the beer store because yeah. it's i wish it were government run it'd be a lot better run it's actually owned by some a, a bunch of massive beer companies uh, who have essentially a monopoly in ontario it's ridiculous that makes sense uh because it was a real shithole and uh, i couldn't find any molson canadian i'm gonna start because it's a friday night uh i'm not sure what date is for you guys listeners uh but uh it's friday night it's shabbos and uh we got some feedback. We kind of went live on our, at least on the website, on Twitter, and a lot of people seemed interested and excited. But I think unexpectedly, or maybe not, maybe we're silly to be surprised by this, but it seemed like people were disappointed we were not drinking enough. And it's clear they wanted us to be drunk. So for you, listeners, I will get drunk, hopefully, today, by the end of the show at the very least. So uh, bottoms up. Cheers. What do you think? Oh, that's... Uh, it's pretty disgusting. That's huh? nasty. That's a fireball. That's a... Was that cinnamon whiskey? Cinnamon whiskey. Illegal in the EU, I hear. Uh, yes, for good reason. Just <laughs> being terrible. <laughs> okay. That's right. So we got... Uh, I'll crack open my... We got uh, the Miller, Miller High Life. The... Um, en français, la, le champagne de bière. The, uh, the champagne of beers. Mm. Is that also in the US? Are they, yeah, it's always... That's, that's their slogan. The champagne of beers. Really? It's right there. Yeah. Wow. That's an yeah. insult. <laughs> Actually, it was a while back that you mentioned to me the intellectual dark web. And I was like, what the hell is that? And I, I think it was, you said, I've been spending a lot of time on the intellectual dark web recently. And I was like, I don't know what this is, but it sounds disreputable. And now you can't, you know, open the New York Times without running into a story about the intellectual dark web. God so. damned Barry Weiss. Ruined it for everybody. You were ahead of your time, Mickey. <laughs> That's right. You were, you were a hipster. Yeah. Um, so, Mickey, since you're the person who's probably like the most familiar with these folks, I'll admit, like, I haven't spent that much time uh, reading a lot of these people. Maybe you can give us uh, a little bit of background and just orientation to who these people are and what they want. That's a good question. So, uh, let me first state right away, and I've kind of made this clear on Twitter. I think the name is terrible. Um, so let me just say what the group is, and then we'll, I'll complain about the name. The group is essentially a, a collection of academics, uh, public intellectuals, journalists, comedians, um, even some uh, activists um, who, for one reason or another, uh, have kind of been kicked out to some extent of their natural political home. They've, they have uh, essentially rubbed against the orthodoxy of their tribe and uh, to some extent, you know, felt homeless. And it turns out that there were quite a collection of these people. And about, I don't know, six months ago, a year ago, um, they started talking to each other more and more. Uh, and I think the term intellectual dark web was coined Earlier in 2018, it was coined by Eric Weinstein uh, on uh, Sam Harris's podcast. I think Ben Shapiro was also uh, on the same uh, episode. And he was just joking, saying, you know, uh, there's a group of us uh, where you can't really find us on typical mainstream outlets like the New York Times or CNN or Fox or whatever. Um, uh, and but, but there's massive followings for these people on YouTube, on podcasts. Uh, and by massive, I mean huge. So, uh, you know, s some of the names that we'll, we'll talk about a little bit. So Jordan Peterson, our colleague. So he has, I think, uh, last I checked, he has something like 600,000 Twitter followers. I believe he has 1 million subscribers to his YouTube channel. He's netting $80,000 a month. Anyway, so it's, it's a group of, uh, of, of people who have found an audience. I found a big audience. Um, and then, you know, Eric Weinstein kind of joked, hey, we're kind of these illicit thinkers talking about, quote unquote, forbidden knowledge. Um, we're kind of like the dark web, but we're like intellectual. So the intellectual dark web was, was you know, born. Or that was the name given. I think it's a terrible name because the dark web is, is, a, is a terrible place. to play. I mean, I never, I don't even know where the dark web is, how one finds it. But at least the lore is that's where you go to get organs or that's where you go to, you know, uh, if you want to 
kill someone. Hire or, a hitman. Yeah, right. Uh, just nasty stuff, or you know, child pornography, stuff like that. So why you want to be associated with that is not clear. It's also not clear that all the people who are intellectuals on there, and I'm not even saying that disparagingly. I mean, there's some people on there, like Joe Rogan is a part of this crew. He's a, a comedian, an actor, uh, who's got an incredibly influential and popular podcast. It's kind of a strange podcast because he had these episodes that go for hours and hours and hours. Typically, he's high as well, I, I believe, Joe Rogan. I'm sure I admire him for that. Um, but uh, but incredibly influential. And I think, you know, for example, Jordan Peterson, uh, after he kind of got into trouble, he went into Joe Rogan's uh, podcast and, and instantly, you know, you know, collected, you know, I don't know how many more hundred thousands of followers. Um, so, you know, very influential. So, yeah, just a group of thinkers uh, who want to talk about things that, let's say, you can't necessarily talk about in mainstream circles, especially, I would say, academia. So who are some of the most well-known people who are on that list? Because I assume this isn't like an organization that you go and join, right? This is more of an informal description of some loosely defined group. Uh, so who are the kind of prominent people that you think of when somebody says intellectual dark web? Yeah. So, I mean, I, I already mentioned Jordan. I mean, Jordan is everywhere. I mean, it is insane. The <laughs> the penetration. Uh, he's just in every media outlet possible. Um, so he's, I think, probably the, the main figure at this point. Um, Sam Harris is also uh, a very prominent figure, also got an incredibly popular podcast. I think he has a, a million viewers. Um, we will reach that, I think, very shortly. Yeah, a couple um, months. Yeah, a couple months, no problem. Uh, so he's he's on there. Sam Harris is a, um, he's a neuroscientist by training. Um, he is an author. Uh, I guess probably most well-known as being one of the uh, the new atheists, along with um, Christopher Hitchens, uh, Dawkins, um, and, and Daniel Dennett. Uh, so he's, you know, a major force. And he's got, getting a very popular podcast and talks about all different kinds of, of things on the podcast. So those are two big ones. Um, Joe Rogan, I mentioned already, kind of more of a, an actor or a comedian. Um, you've got Ben Shapiro. Uh, ben Shapiro is a former writer uh, for Breitbart. He's he's probably the, the uh, you know, so he uh, is an interesting story because well, he's an Orthodox and religious uh, religious Jew. Um, and he was a writer for Breitbart, but essentially got kicked out of Breitbart because he opposed Trump. So he was kind of kicked out of his conservative tribe. But I would say the remainder of the posse are kind of kicked out of liberal circles. So um, other people, Christine Hoff Summers um, is another one. Uh, there's also Majid Nawaz, who is a um, politician, activist, uh, based out of the UK. He was a former Muslim extremist uh, uh, who reformed himself, and now he's uh, trying to reform Islam, actually. Uh, Ayan Hirsi Ali, and another, um, uh, 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 maybe an ex-Muslim now, who is uh, from Somalia and uh, is very outspoken against Islam. Um, you've got Gad Saad, who is a psychologist or um, evolutionary psychologist in a business school at, in, in Montreal, Concordia University. Um, Deborah So, who writes uh, for the Globe and Mail, writes for Playboy. Uh, Claire Lehman. So there's a bunch of people um, uh, you know, out there. Uh, but I, I guess the, the main people, at least in my mind, are going to be... Oh, I, I can't forget uh, Dave Rubin as well. I believe he maybe is a comedian, but now he's got this, uh, I think, very popular essentially a talk show, kind of like um, a Larry King-style talk show on YouTube. Uh, again, that's very, very popular. So when you say dark web, uh, I feel like that implies somehow that these people aren't getting a lot of attention or that they're sort of flying under the radar. But that doesn't seem to be true of most of the people that you described. So Jordan, for example, is, as you said, uh, everywhere. Uh, Christina Hoff Summers, I believe, is at the American Enterprise Institute. So that's like a well-known uh, libertarian think tank. Um, Joe Rogan's podcast, Dave Rubin's podcast, these have like literally, you know, hundreds of thousands of subscribers, right? So it's not like these people are underexposed, right? It's not like there's some well-kept secret. So what is the uh, the argument for exclusion, I guess? Yeah, I mean, I, mean, I think that's a, that, that, that's a really good point. And, and, and I think it's debatable to what extent they've been excluded. Now, I think some people were. I think there are cases where people 
uh, were excluded. So, you know, let's start with Jordan, Jordan Peterson. So he became famous or infamous. Uh, I believe it was, what, in October or November of 2016 when he put out a YouTube video opposing a a, a bill, now a law in Canada, that was going to um, uh, increase protection. Uh, it was going to actually protect uh, transgendered people uh, as a protected group, and they could be protected from, you know, from... Uh, from hate, hate speech. And he, now I'm not sure, I'm not a legal scholar, so I don't know exactly the details here. My understanding is that, you know, he read the law as say, suggesting that it would curtail his speech, curtail, it would force him, it would compel him to use pronouns that he didn't want to use. Now, my reading of the law was no compelling whatsoever. It was just simply adding transgendered people as a protected minority. Uh, but he felt it was compelling him to use, you know, you know, fake pronouns. And he objected to that. And then, you know, he put out this video and instantly became infamous and people were protesting him. And he even got a number of letters from the University of Toronto saying, hey, you better stop this because you are in violation of uh, of human rights code and uh, there could be, you know, severe ramifications. Now, I don't know how serious that letter was. I don't know if there was any, truly any ramifications, but I know that Jordan felt that he was threatened. I mean, I saw some videos of him around that time and you can see visibly, he was visibly upset and he was even emaciated. He just, he looked, he th I think he thought he was going to lose his job. Um, and he faced opposition in, in, around every corner. I mean, people were defacing his office, uh, office door. Um, he had pr student protesters outside of, uh, you know, the, the psychology building. Um, so, I mean, that's, you know, and for him, it's essentially expressing, uh, you know, an opinion that was not popular. Right. I don't think that he was expressing uh, transphobic attitudes, though. I mean, one might read into his motives and say maybe he was transphobic. And I think at the time I did think that. But now that I look back, I think he was uh, he was dissenting from, from a law that he think was just, but he didn't necessarily engage in any hate speech himself. So he, there's a case where I think, you know, he felt excluded. And I think to some extent, he was excluded. I mean, there was a petition, uh, I believe it was in the fall. Start, I'm not sure who started it, but it was signed by, uh, it was a petition to get him fired. It was signed by uh, hundreds and hundreds of people, many pro uh, professors, many professors at University of Toronto, but also many professors uh, across Canada. And I think, I think that's ludicrous. I mean, I, I, again, I don't think, uh, at least at the time, I don't think he crossed any lines, but yet he, he is he was by definition being excluded, being pushed out. You know, his his speech was not welcome. Um, so I think that is a case where, you know, he's being excluded. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think we completely agree about the, uh, that it's ridiculous to say a, a tenured faculty member shouldn't be able to take a controversial political position. I mean, that, in my opinion, that's what, what tenure is for. At the same time, you might say, yeah, he got pushback from people in a very kind of specific group. So campuses are like well to the left of, of the rest of society, right? So you say like he was actually expressing a view that's probably like pretty common, maybe even the majority view in Canada or the US more broadly. Um, so is it just the case that we have certain people who are kind of iconoclastic who take views that are like outside of like the kind of narrow consensus in their immediate environment who get pushback there kind of unsurprisingly now that's not to like excuse people who are calling for him to be fired which i think is ridiculous but it shouldn't be surprising that those views are going to upset a very left-wing group um and then trying to extrapolate that to, well, society doesn't want to hear my radical views, when really it's just a small group of people disagrees with my views. Yeah, so I'm, I agree with you 100%. I think, I, think, I think he's much more popular in the public than he is at the, you know, at, at the campus level, at the university level. But, I mean, I, you know, that's his life, though. I mean, he is a university professor. He's, you know, this is his vocation and this is what he does. So he's surrounded by people like this. Now, that might change given his, his newfound fame. Um, but uh, you can, I, I feel, I mean, I can empathize with him feeling persecuted and him feeling um, um, unjustly, I think, labeled uh, tarred, uh, tarred and feathered to, to some extent. Um, and I'll say this. I think... He's found acceptance, wide acceptance, in broad swaths of uh, of the mainstream public. 
But is it possible that what he wants, what Brett Weinstein wants, what um, Sam Harris wants, is to be accepted by their peers, to be accepted by other intellectuals who are typically found in universities. And, and that's, you know, and, and that's the ultimate prize. That's the ultimate acceptance. I think what it is, is uh, with the exception of Shapiro, who, you know, was rejected by other conservatives, um, it seems like most of the folks, if not all the rest of the folks, were rejected by the left. Right. I think many uh, of the folks in the intellectual dark web um, would have considered themselves progressives and, and some of them still do. So Brett Weinstein's, you know, uh, claims he still still is. A, you know, he was a, a Bernie supporter, apparently. Sam Harris was a was a Hillary supporter. He hates Donald Trump. Um, but I think they've been you know, pushed out by the left. And I think because maybe that's their natural home, that's where they feel uh, the closest. And because they want to discuss issues uh, that the left has deemed off limits. So really the argument is like on the left, the tent isn't big enough because, you know, you could certainly like get a job at the National Review writing about how, uh, you know, transgender people are just confused about their gender identity or about race and IQ. So really, isn't this just saying like, well, I disagree with these people, but I'm mad that now they're they don't like me because I disagree with them. Like there should be more room for disagreement and they should still consider me to be on their team, even though we we don't agree on X, Y, and Z. Yes, I think that's precisely right. And I'll be honest with you, and I feel almost I'm coming out here. So I'm uh, I'm a lifelong liberal. Um, in fact, I, I think I vote for every election for our liberal party, or occasionally I vote for our NDP, which is even further to the left. Um, but there are some issues that on the left that make me uncomfortable, on the far left that make me uncomfortable. And I sometimes feel that I might be rejected if I express, you know, not necessarily uh, agreement with, you know, let's say some more conservative views, but uh, even questioning the conservative views. And I don't, I mean, I remember uh, uh, my wife, at one point we were discussing this and um, she said, oh, you're just a conservative. And I was, I was offended. I'm like, I, I, I mean, nothing wrong with conservatism, but I don't identify as a conservative. And, and I, and, you know, in pretty much every, uh, you know, topic or, or, or issue, I fall on the left. Uh, nearly, I mean, let's say ninety or ninety-five percent. But there's that five percent where I might disagree, and I feel if I voiced that disagreement, I would be, yeah, I feel I would be disparaged. I would be, um, you know, pushed aside. One thing I wonder is how much of that is, uh, you know, worst-case scenario thinking, and how much is actually true. Like, have you tried? No, I haven't tried. Mm -hmm. I haven't tried. Um, and I don't know. You're absolutely right. I mean, I tried with you, but you, you seem to be sympathetic. So, uh, but you're exceptional. <laughs> Thanks, buddy. I would say that, like, I, you know, I've certainly only ever voted Democratic, but like, you know, I have a mix of beliefs and I'm not like down the line liberal either. And I feel like most people that I've talked to about politics, that's true about them. Like they're, you know, in our line of work. Yeah, you're not going to find a lot of Trump voters. Um, but most people are like, well, you know, I'm on board with this stuff, but this stuff gives me pause, right? So I think there's more, this is actually, this is empirically what we found as well, um, Yoris and I in our, our survey of uh, social personality psychologists, that there's more diversity of opinion out there than, than you would think. And um, I think to some extent, uh, there's a bit of uh, pluralistic ignorance mm. going on where, where nobody wants to be the first person to speak up, right? Yeah, yeah, you, you might be right. So let me, let me give you one... And this is really mild. This is not even, maybe it's not even a great example, but uh, so I wrote an article uh, a number of years ago. I forget what year now. Was it 2008, 2007? I forget now when it was published. Um, and there was a paper that was following up another paper uh, where the original paper was by uh, Kurt um, Hugenberg and Galen Bodenhausen, where they uh, showed participants these videos, these videos of faces morphing from um, anger to happiness. And participants, all they had to do is press a button when they thought the, the face had uh, fully changed from anger to happiness. Sometimes it went from, uh, from, from happiness to anger. And what they found was that uh, those who are high in prejudice, I think in this case it was implicit prejudice, they, were, uh, they saw anger more readily appear 
on the face of black uh, actors uh, in these little videos, as opposed to white actors. So they kind of uh, saw, uh, well, they, uh, with a big issue information, they, they used the stereotype to judge uh, what they saw. Right. And that was, you know, I think uh, it was, I think it was published in Psych Science, I believe, very well received. And it's kind of like toes the party line of, look, racism or prejudice leads people to even see ambiguous things in a negative way. And then we assume anger in the face of a black man uh, when there might be none of that. Um, so, you know, I really enjoyed that paper, liked it a lot. Um, and now at the time, at least, I was studying uh, stigma and prejudice from the perspective of the target. And I wanted to take the exact same paradigm, um, but now examine it from the perspective of a stigmatized person. So if you're a target of prejudice, um, uh, how do you see someone who might be prejudiced against you? Um, so in other words, what is the face of chauvinism um, and do some people more readily see that face? So what we did is we had a, you know, uh, we created these, you know, 3D animated figures, uh, actually just, just their faces. Uh, we had men and women, uh, male and female faces. And they went from a, a look of contempt or disgust. Contempt and disgust faces are quite similar. Um, and then they went to acceptance or happiness afterwards. And what we found was that those who were high in rejection sensitivity or stigma consciousness, they saw um, contempt more readily in the face of men as opposed to women, and, and men didn't show this effect. Now, this is pre-replication crisis. I don't know if this is replicable or not. Uh, you know, I haven't replicated myself. But the point of this story doesn't hinge on whether it's replicable or not. Um, uh, as part of writing the story, I said, look, you know, this could actually lead to a self-fulfilling prophecy, right? So if a victim of prejudice sees um, that someone might be rejecting them, and if they're high in stigma consciousness, they more readily see it, and they might even see it when it's not there at all. And then they're acting aloof, and they might actually create the behavior they're expecting um, in the person they're talking to. Okay, so I, I added this into the uh, into the paper, and the editor who was you know uh, accepted the paper was very very nice. Said, hey, you know, I think you need to cool it on on that paragraph where you said that this could lead to a self uh, lead to a self fulfilling prophecy. Right, because you're blaming the victim, um, and now you're saying it's their fault for the negative outcomes they they receive, and that's not what I was saying at all. Um, but I was simply s stating that you know it works both ways, right? Ambiguous information on the face of a uh, perceiver or a or a target um, could, you know, if it's ambiguous, it could influence how you perceive things, and then you could you can create these self-fulfilling prophecies. You can create, at least in my study, you can create the perception of prejudice when none is there. Okay. And it was this mild pushback. It wasn't a lot. You know, I was forced to write the paragraph. I, I was able to include that paragraph, but I had to write like two other paragraphs saying, well, that's probably not right. Um, and here's an example where, you know, it's the same logic. Uh, but, you know, in one case, because now we're saying that perceivers who happen to be low power, who are victims of prejudice, they might also be creating some, you know, some behavior in their interaction partners that was kind of anathema. And I, you know, I know that's a silly, small issue. It's not, a, not really a big deal. But imagine I had, you know, opinions uh, or attitudes that are a bit more outspoken on this dimension. You, I, I'd imagine I'd get a lot more pushback. Um, maybe my papers will be blocked. Um, so again, I know we mentioned Lee Jessam, uh, I think in our first episode, but I think this mirrors his experience where he was, you know, I think doing good research as far as I could tell, um, and got pushed back because his findings weren't politically convenient. I have no trouble at all believing that story and believing that it happens quite a bit. Um, and I think it's bad for our science. Um, I think this is how we end up with research that it, it obviously, like transparently, comes at questions with a certain political agenda. Um, I don't know whether I would call that, well, it's problematic for the research. I don't know that it's problematic for Mickey. You know what I mean? Like you very gently got nudged to like turn something down, right? I think that's bad, like because it was kind of transparently for political reasons. But it's not like you were silenced. It's not like you didn't get, uh, you know, tenure. It's not like people said anything bad about you, even. Okay, but but as as I said, this was a mild, you know, uh, uh, the point I was trying to make was very mild. I think reasonable people will, will won't find it too offensive. But what if I what if I my attitudes were a bit more controversial. What if I thought, for example, that, uh, for example, you know, I, 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 a kind of term that gets thrown out around a lot is kind of we're in this kind of oppression culture. A lot of people are oppressed. What if I felt that 
That's a terrible idea. What if I felt that actually just leads to a victim mentality among uh, stigmatized people? And it actually hurts them. Uh, it hurts society. Um, and, you know, it, it, you know, by obviating a personal responsibility, by kind of blaming some patriarchy and some oppressive system, um, it's actually bad for everybody. And let's say I really believe this and I was outspoken about this and I taught this in my class, classrooms and I released a video on, you know, about this. I suspect I would be, I would face a lot more opposition. Um, now again, I, I wouldn't be kicked out. I'm a tenured professor. I don't think there's truly uh, much that could happen to me, uh, you know, in terms of my job security. But I have a lot of, I'd have a lot of people screaming at me, I have a lot of people making my life uncomfortable. And truly, I, I, I wouldn't do it because I'd be scared. Truly, I wouldn't do it because I'm a coward. <laughs> um, and I think what we're seeing is for the people in the intellectual dark web, they, they're not cowards, right? They cross some line because they're like, you know what? I've had enough of this and I'm just going to speak my mind. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to speak the truth, you know, that I see. Um, it might be politically inconvenient, um, but this is what I think is true. Um, and I'm going to speak my mind. And I suppose it's a shame that people who, for the, you know, let's get into the benefit of the doubt, you know, have good intentions, uh, would be, yes, it kicked out, would be kind of, um, uh, yeah, seen as people you wouldn't want to associate with yeah, uh, because of their views. I think it's, uh, that's a useful thing to keep in mind when you're like, well, the examples um, that come to mind, they, they sort of seem like sometimes like cranky axe grinders or like they're a bit off. But it may be that those are the only people who are cranky and thin-skinned and dramatic enough to kick up a fuss, right? That there's quite a few people who might agree to at least some of that stuff or have their own complaints, but they're like, eh, it's not worth it. I don't want to have this fight. And then you end up with a kind of a selection effect where you get kind of the most extreme people who are willing to take that position. Right. So is this, do you, do you think that this is kind of the core of what these folks are arguing that what they are is a reaction to not in the cultural and culture in general, but in like very specific corners of it, like academia um, to rule certain ideas inadmissible. And that's what they're pushing back against. Yeah, yeah. I mean, so again, again, with the exception of Ben Shapiro, I think all of them are pushing back against what they perceive as the the um, you know the extremes of the left, um, and you know they want to discuss some taboo topics, you know, topics around race, about about gender, uh, about uh, again gender fluidity. Um, I think a lot of them have issues with uh, even uh, Islam or Islamophobia. So again, you can see why he would be vilified by the left. Right, because to some extent, uh, religion uh, is something that we don't tend to criticize. The cultures, you know, there's a, there's a, uh, I think one thing that the the, the people on on the, the dark webbers is they they're really against um, cultural relativism. This notion that all cultures are to be judged on their own uh, on their own set of rules, and you can't really say one culture is better than another. Um, and people like Sam Harris and Jordan as well, they're like, no, there are there are some cultures that are better than others, and I think that's um, they want to have the right to say that. I mean, leaving the merits of that aside, doesn't it seem like a little weird to be primarily worried about the acceptability of saying bad things about Islam when, like, the president of the United States is like trying to literally institute a Muslim ban, yes, right? right? When there's like the the dude in Portland who, uh, you know, went on the the public transit and like tried to stab, actually killed one person, two yeah. people, right? Yeah, at least one who tried to defend uh, uh, a Muslim woman yeah. uh, that that he was uh, that he was harassing, right? And that's like. Just one example of like a number of like anti-Muslim hate crimes that are happening, like not only in the U.S. but uh, in Canada as well. Like, uh, so isn't that like? Aren't you kind of like focusing on the wrong thing there? Like, it's <laughs> right. Like in the broader culture, certainly there's no problem with saying like I hate Muslims. I want to keep them out of the country. <laughs> well, so maybe 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 what we're what we're kind of circling around here is you know what they want to have their cake and eat it too. Right. So they want to be able to, uh, let's say, let's stick with this example of, of criticizing Islam. They want to be able to criticize aspects of Islam, but also be accepted in polite society. 
right? Trump is not. Trump is not seen as an intellectual. Trump is not seen as someone who uh, has any ideas that are that are worthy of anything among in, in, you know uh, in intellectual circles, right? But these people are academics. Many of them are academics themselves, and some of them have these attitudes, and they want to they want to be able to express those attitudes and also uh, be acceptable. Well, okay. I think this is uh, the the thing that is most interesting to me about these folks is what this um, what this implies about traditional gatekeeping and how that may be on its way out. Um, but I think that's something that we should talk about after the break because I gotta pee. All right, pee right. away. We <laughs> go to the bathroom first. Yeah. <laughs> you don't mind. <laughs> And we're back. I'm on beer number three. What what beer number is that for you, Mickey? Uh, this is a beer two. Uh-huh. I did have the fireball, right? You did have the shot. And I'll make sure to uh, drink more quickly. Yeah. Um, yeah. Drink more. Yes. That's I, what our audience demands. <laughs> yeah, that's clear. I was surprised by that, uh, that they really wanted us to get drunk and uh, speak our minds. I, I think guess. they want you to get drunk. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> and we know they want to see your glorious chest hair. Oh, that got a that got a big response from our Twitter followers. <laughs> yeah. Uh oh, great segue. If you have no idea what Mickey's talking about, you can find out by following at Four Beers Pod on Twitter. That's also the best way to get in touch with us. You can at message us, you can direct message us. Our DMs are open, so you don't even need to follow us in order to send us a message. Uh if you prefer the old-fashioned way, you can also send us an email at fourbeerspod at gmail. Dot com and our website as always is fourbeers.fireside.fm Mickey were there any acknowledgments that you wanted to get in here while we're doing this yeah uh so the if you like the intro music or the outro music that uh was created by my talented brother-in-law and a very good friend uh Josh Ball he sometimes goes by Yoshi Ball uh, so yeah props to him I'm really uh grateful that he would do that for us because I think it sounds great it really sounds amazing. Yeah. So here's something that I really do think is interesting about these folks is that they, for better or for worse, they they go around these traditional gatekeepers that have decided in the past, you know, who gets a platform and who doesn't. You know, if you don't convince the editorial board of a major newspaper or a magazine or so on uh, that your voice is worth hearing, then it was tough to reach people before the internet, right? Like those outlets were. Uh, you know, they they were tough to get into. Um, and if you're uh, a little weird or iconoclastic or have ideas outside the mainstream, then likely you weren't going to be asked to uh, to give your opinion. And now with the internet, that is um, that gatekeeping is is gone. So I think actually very similarly to the way that we talked about uh, for the last show, uh, for scientific critiques, we have an environment where people can just like put their opinion out there. Like Jordan was, he was a nobody. Um, relatively speaking. And then he made some YouTube videos and he got famous. And it wasn't that the New York Times decided that they should give him a platform. It was that people found him organically uh, and he grew an audience that way. I think a lot of mainstream media folks view him as a bit of a crank uh, <laughs> with some justification. Yeah, with, with lots of justification. <laughs> right. So like, clearly these are people who like don't think much of him, but also it's not like they can really do anything to him. It's not like the New York Times writing a story that makes him look silly is going to do anything to dent his popularity. If anything, it reinforces the narrative of I'm the person they don't want you to hear from. They're out to get me. They don't like me. And then like, if you're a Jordan Peterson fan, you're like, these people don't want me thinking for myself. They want to tell me what the right opinions are. You know, and obviously people are going to be reactive to that, right? They're they're going to get angry about that. Um 
And so I think these folks are essentially untouchable by people who once would have been the gatekeepers, right? So the more that those outlets criticize them, the better it makes the intellectual dark web people look. And that really is new, that you can sort of like build this audience directly um, going around people who traditionally have decided what ex- what opinions you're allowed to hear what you're not. And and that can be for good, I think, in some cases, but it can also, I think, be for ill in that those gatekeepers filtered out a lot of like crank or or just, you know, um kind of appalling stuff. So so one thing I would throw over to you is like, say, you know, we uh concede that it's an issue that there's this kind of uniformity of opinion in like the you know, respectable center left outlets, right? Because also like none of this stuff applies to Fox News or, or the Wall Street Journal even, right? Uh, the Washington Times. Uh, so there's certainly conservative outlets, but like in the center left, like uh, mainstream outlets, the New York Times, the Washington Post, uh, the Atlantic, the New Yorker, and so on, like they have a certain kind of narrowness of opinion. And we're going to go around that now. And we're going to say anybody who wants to put their YouTube video up can like build an audience. But what if that's, you know, racial inferiority or what if that's, you know, women shouldn't be allowed to vote or whatever? Like if isn't that filtering function valuable in a way in, in keeping certain things like out of the dialogue that really are just um, bigoted? Yeah, absolutely. And that's actually, uh, uh, it's Barry Weiss, the much maligned Barry Weiss. Uh, that was her critique, her main critique of, of, of the intellectual dark web. She said, you know, Dave Rubin, I think, is a, is a prime example of this, where he would just have these crazies, you know, Alex Jones. Um, I think he had, probably should fact check this, uh, Stefan Molyneux. Um, who is that for people? Who so Stefan Molyneux is a Canadian, uh, uh, I believe, uh, podcaster, ex- extremely influential podcaster, um, who, I mean, it's, it's kind of interesting because he got into a bit of trouble with Sam Harris, but I think most people describe him as a white supremacist, or, you know, as a gateway to the alt-right and to white supremacy. Um, and he, he peddles in kind of race science and he's obsessed with, you know, the race IQ difference. Um, uh, and, you know, these people are on these shows unfiltered as if they're legitimate. Right. And I think that's dangerous. Um, I think it's dangerous for Alex Jones to be given to, to the extent that, you know, someone like Dave Rubin has credibility. I think he does now, especially after this, all these features on the intellectual dark web. His show is only going to get more popular. I wouldn't be surprised if in a year he will be on, um, you know, mainstream television. I think that brings up a really interesting question, which is given that these folks have managed to go around these traditional institutions and reach large audiences. You might say the attempt to like gatekeep them has failed and we we know it's not going to work. Does it make sense to maybe try to bring them into the mainstream in order to moderate some of the crazy, right? So we know that these folks are going to be reaching big audiences and it would be nice if they had like an editor who is like, well, you know, maybe don't invite on the like race scientist. Dave Rubin. Maybe that's like not the best guest. Maybe get somebody else. So it does is is that kind of like does that seem persuasive to you? That eventually they'll be brought into the fold? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, so I'll say this. Uh I, I think that that could happen. Like I I I I I predict that again Dave Rubin will will be you know brought into some some news outfit in the next few years, a year or two. Or maybe he enjoys, you know, this kind of like uh Rebel label now. I'm not sure, um, but I think yeah. I think that would be a positive development. But they can also do the, do it themselves, right? So, and I think I, I didn't actually watch the video, but I believe Dave Rubin either today or uh, or yesterday actually released a kind of a special report, um, a 10 minute little video where he was saying exactly that he would do that. So I think he took Barry Weiss's criticism to heart and said, "Yeah, I shouldn't have had Alex Jones or." Mike Cernovich. Um, well, I don't know who that is, but apparently he's some crazy person. Do you know who you know who that person is? Uh, some alt right figure. That's all I know. Okay. Um, so it, it seemed like he took the criticism and is, is going to do something about it. So that's great. I think that's wonderful. Um, and that that shows humility, right? That shows like okay, you know, maybe I have made mistakes, and and that'd be one thing I would say that. At least with some of the figures, I haven't seen enough of enough admission of 
making mistakes, admission of, yeah, I probably shouldn't have done that. So Jordan, I mean, Jordan appeared on Stefan Molyneux's podcast um, and, and he probably should have known, he probably, should, you know, should have known, you know, what this, what, what that guy's all about. Um, maybe Jordan should be taking more responsibility for his followers and, and even apologizing. You know, I think Sam Harris is, 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 is another great example. Um, you know, brilliant guy. I mean, you know, his, uh, I, I think of his, you know, being like his verbal agility is like, I think unparalleled. I mean, he's just got a way with words and just incredibly smart. Um, but not humble, right? Not, you know, doesn't admit what he doesn't know. Doesn't admit where he's not an expert. Um, and I don't think his brain will diminish if he did that. Uh, so for example, you know, we, we alluded to it a couple of times, but he had, he invited Charles Murray uh, on a podcast about a year ago. And then, it, and that led to some, uh, some flare ups with, uh, some articles written about him, uh, and Charles Murray at, at Vox. And then he had another podcast a year later with Ezra Klein. Um, and, you know, he described this as kind of them talking past each other. I saw it as Sam just not listening to what Ezra was saying. Um, just not being, you know, uh, just not listening, not being humble, and and this is maybe uh, maybe is a nice segue to kind of another point that I think we, we should discuss, and that is um, to what extent you know. So the way Barry Weiss described the intellectual dark web is that this far ranging group they discuss all kinds of ideas, no ideas are off bounds, and they debate and they argue and they discuss, um, and I think that's only somewhat true. Um, and why I say that is because while they are, while they do discuss things. They talk to each other, okay? Um, but you don't see them talking to their uh, adversaries on their podcasts. So, for example, uh, why didn't Sam Harris, instead of having Ezra Klein, who's a journalist, not an expert in IQ, not an expert on genetics, not an expert on race, um, but he brought Ezra Klein onto our podcast when he could have easily brought Eric Turkheimer he could have easily brought Paige Harden onto the podcast and talk with them about these issues. Because I, you know, that 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 discussion was so infuriating because I believe they're just missing facts. Both of them are missing facts, and they're talking past each other because they actually didn't have the facts straight. But I suspect Sam Harris didn't want to talk to these other experts because he didn't like their point of view. He didn't like what they would have to say, and he didn't think it would be productive. Well, to me, those are the people who you want to talk to precisely. If your whole thing is about having discussion, far-ranging discussions with people of varying political stripes, well then, bring people who are on the left onto your show. Bring, you know, you criticize social justice warriors, that's, you know, this, this epithet now. Um, uh, well, bring some of those people on. Right and bring the smart ones on. Now, don't bring the the, the buffoons, the, the the people who are caricatures. Bring the smart ones on and discuss with them. And I, that's something I have not seen. I've not seen that with Sam Harris. I've not seen that with Dave Rubin. Um, yeah, and and that and that I think is you know uh, a blind spot. They think they're having these far ranging conversations, but they're essentially talking to other people who feel jilted by the left. Mm -hmm. And the topic of conversation is typically bad things that people on the left do. That's what brings them together. Essentially, that, that that's what brings them together. Um, actually, I, I even kind of, uh, not a scientific analysis by any means, um, but I actually, I wanted to see, you know, that was my impression. My impression was that uh, most of the things that the, you know, intellectual dark web discuss are kind of reactionary. They're anti-left. They're not necessarily like, hey, we're these centrists and we have these, you know, these ideas or we're you know, now people are calling themselves, you know, classical liberals. Um, and we have these ideas. In my sense is that they were reacting to the far left. But, you know, just to make sure that I'm not kind of, you know, just my own impression, I actually went on to kind of quantify this a little bit. So I went on to, so Quillette Magazine is this online magazine started by Claire Lehman, who's also part of this intellectual dark web. Um, and she, uh, I mean, I, what I should have done is went on to and, and kind of coded the last 20 articles uh, from that magazine. But what I did instead is they have a Facebook group, Quillette Circle, they call it. Um, and I just looked at the first 20 articles that came on my feed and I kind of categorized them as, you know, are these kind of reactionary to the left? Are they uh, pro-right? Are they pro-left? Are they anti-right? Are they centrist? Or are they kind of miscellaneous? 
right? And, you know, with all this stuff, there's judgment calls. I didn't have two raiders. It's just me. So this is not scientific by any means. So I looked at 20. Um, eight of the 20 articles were uh, reactionary, anti-left, kind of rea- reacting to some, you know, uh, perceived exaggeration on the left. Um, there were a couple who, that were pro-left. Uh, but if you look at any of the commentaries that were, you know, rapidly, you know, uh, anti, you know, the main posts. And then you had a bunch of miscellaneous, including this. I, I needed a whole category for like um, admirers or fans or, or I, you know, worshippers of the cult of Jordan Peterson, because there was literally like I think three or four. There were more stuff specifically about Jordan Peterson and the cult of Jordan Peterson than that were kind of more that were pro-right. But anyways, eight out of twenty, eight out of twenty were were you know reacting to uh, to the left. So I think that's what unites them is is this kind of uh, uh, feeling jilted by the left. Yeah, I mean, if you think about like what do Brett Weinstein, what what unites him and Ben Shapiro, who's you know Ben Shapiro, in my opinion, is just a right wing talk radio host who happens to not be on the radio. He has a daily podcast, right? What unites those two is dislike of certain things that certain people on the left do, right? Otherwise, they basically have nothing in common. Right. Yeah, that's absolutely right. I mean, so Ben Shapiro is the, is the kind of the weird one of that group, because I think he would be the, maybe I'm not right about this, but he was one of the only ones that are actually conservative. But the other ones are, are you know, more on the left and feel jilted by the left. So, um, so we've, I think, you know, criticized and and, and maybe kind of, you know, Wonder to what extent you know this intellectual dark web is 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 a good force you know in our society is it is it a positive thing, um, and I think we've been somewhat critical uh, maybe even very critical, um, but I wonder if we can try to be more positive. By that I mean, I mean so you know these folks have massive followings, massive followings. So clearly there's a hunger out there. There there is a thirst out there for what these people are saying. Um now unless you want to dismiss all those people as being, you know, a basket full of deplorables. Um I think we need to reckon with that. I think we need to say okay, well what is, what is the left missing? You know, what are we missing that a bunch of you know, uh, jilt, people who feel jilted by the left, um, you know, they're attracting this, this, this huge number of people. So what is it, what is it, what is it that they're saying that is attracting people? You know, one answer could just be simply, oh, they're all just racist. And like I said, they're basketball and deplorables. Um, but I think that's too simple, simplistic of an answer. Uh, I don't think that's, I think that's probably true for some of the, 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 the millions and millions of followers, but I don't think it's true for, for most of them. So what do you think? What do you think they're saying that is attracting people? Yeah, I I think people do have the sense that like uh, in these certain very kind of specific environments that are nonetheless quite influential, like you know media, academia, and so on, that there's a set of right answers, and anything outside of that is uh, sort of um, looked at with extreme skepticism. Um, and you know, I I was I was skeptical earlier about like well the bad consequences of actually expressing those views would those be as bad as we actually think maybe maybe not but like i think people feel there's like a constrained range of opinions that you get in kind of mainstream outlets uh from mainstream researchers and so on and what they like are that these folks are willing to bring up things outside of that mainstream um and i think that does like there's just naturally this idea of like free thinking that appeals to people right of like i'm not going to live by your rules i'm going to do you know what i want to do if we want to talk about this question like why can't we you know it's just like that's just naturally appealing to folks but i mean they could get some of this from fox news yeah right? or the yeah, national review right. so so i mean and, and of course they have massive audiences right. but i mean why is there any audience for uh for the intellectual dark web yeah, I, I think people want outlets that aren't like uh, avowedly partisan. Right? So you might be like, in effect, like a lot of these folks just end up talking about like the excesses of like the campus left, for example. But in their branding, they are, with the exception of Shapiro, who's like, like you said, just self-described conservative. They're they're not that. They're like, we're iconoclastic. You know, we bring in ideas from all over. Like we don't have... Uh, you know, predisposed notions of what's acceptable and what's not. 
I think there that's that's more hype than reality. So as you pointed out, like Sam Harris, for example, like he is on guests who disagree with him, but like never guests who like really disagree with him. It's like kind of in a constrained range of like, you know, acceptable disagreement, ironically, mm-hmm. kind of in the same way you would find in the Times, right? Yeah. Um and uh, you know, I I, I think even though the, you know, hype might outrun the reality a bit, like people respond to that idea. You know, they like the idea of this is somebody who's not going to be pushing an agenda. They're just open-minded and trying to like critically think through, uh, you know, the issues and entertain different points of view and see what's right. And I, I think, you know, you just get this natural reactance from people when you're like, well, that idea is not allowed. You know, I'm not going to explain to you why it's just bad. Everybody who thinks that is bad and you should have known that already, you know, like people do not like that. You just can't impose your ideas kind of by, by force, right? Like, especially not now where people will be like, well, screw you. I'm going to go to YouTube and like, look at uh, somebody who doesn't have your like doctrinaire point of view. Right. So I, I think that's doomed to fail kind of inherently. Well, there's another possibility. So I I think all we've discussed is, I think, I I think, right. Um, But what if some of it is also, um, I mean, they talk about things that resonate with people, right? And they talk about it in a a way that's different than what you'll get from, again, the National Review or, uh, I mean, Fox News. Um, So let's just, maybe maybe we can make this, instead of being abstract, we can can actually make it concrete. Um, So one issue that I, think is one that pushes a lot of these intellectual dark web buttons um, is the concept of equality. And I think Jordan Peterson described, uh, I think he said, uh, just like, you know, on the right, racism is a, uh, you know, when someone expresses racist attitudes, you know, that's a, that, that's a signal that they're just, you know, not to be trusted, not to be, uh, uh, yeah, you, you can't, you can't trust them with anything, essentially. Uh, their attitudes are, are invalid. He suggested that if you talk about equality, uh, you're not to be trusted on the left. And, and to make things uh, 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 a little bit more clear, he means equality of outcome, right? So he means the idea that um, the outcome at the end of the day, uh, whether it's equal or not, is, uh, is not important. And if, if you're out for uh, equality of outcome, um, you are a dangerous person. Um, I mean, he, you know, because Jordan is uh, uh, a no fan of nuance, you know, he would argue that, you know, this is the, the, the road to the gulag. Um, uh, and, 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 you know, 50 billion <laughs> deaths, uh, you know, equality of outcome. Um, but, you know, so anyways, you know, I think Jordan exaggerates a bit, but it seem, that seems to be an issue that uh, is, I, I would say, sacred on the left and seems to be slowly being criticized um, by, again, these, you know, some of the folks on the intellectual dark web. And I think, I, I, you know, again, I don't listen to conservative talk radio. I don't watch Fox News. I don't know if they talk about this, you know, explicitly. Um, uh, but clearly the intellectual dark webbers are. So, and maybe that appeals to people to some extent, um, you know, who feel that, uh who feel to some extent that actually equality of outcome is not something we should be striving for, that it's actually a bad thing. Yeah, I think Americans in particular have kind of a deep belief in meritocracy and that rewards should go to the people who are the most talented or who work the hardest. So if you look at, for example, affirmative action in higher education, um, so I think this is a Pew poll where they ask people, and this is from memory, so I may get the details a little wrong, uh, do you favor a system whereby college and university admissions are based only on merit, or where members of certain disadvantaged groups are admitted preferentially, even though they might not have been, had the uh, had the admissions been based purely on other indicators? Um, and the merit only option is favored by i think 75% of respondents overall it's favored by even a plurality of black respondents mm-hmm. right so the group that stereotypically you would think would be all about affirmative action like a plurality of those people uh don't favor it in higher education so i think this is something that runs really really deep um in uh americans beliefs about what's what's fair um th- and this is something where like the elite opinion in in certain very 
uh, specific circles has gotten way out of sync with that popular opinion. So, you know, if you polled your, uh, your academic colleagues, you know, do you think it's acceptable to say, I don't think we should have affirmative action. I think admission should be based only on merit. Like I would bet you a lot of people would be like, I'd be kind of uncomfortable saying that in a faculty meeting, right? That's, that's the thing where like you would, you would think carefully before you opened your mouth about that, right? And and yet that's something where, you know, three to one, you don't see that on a lot of issues in the US, right? So there's there's agreement from like, you know, a lot of people who vote Democrat on it should be based only on merit. Um, so I think maybe what these folks are doing is um, kind of drawing attention to the fact that the range of opinion in certain groups has gotten so far from uh the 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 opinion of like the american population at large that th- there's just like this crazy gap that's opened up and they're they're sort of like drawing everybody's attention to the fact that like hey we've really drifted pretty far here from what most people think so they're just articulating a point of view that like i think many many americans share yeah many americans share but as as you stated uh in very few academics, at least publicly, share. Um, and it seems like, you know, striving for equality of outcome uh, is, you know, sacrosanct to, to, to some extent. So, again, I think we talked about this in our first episode. Um, and this is, I bring it up because, you know, close to my heart. I studied this for a lot in my, um, in the first part of my career. Yeah. Uh, you know, the underrepresentation of women in STEM. So in, you know, science, technology, engineering, and math fields. Um, so computer science or programming would be would be a great example. Um, I think just about a year ago, uh James Damore, who uh was actually championed by the by the intellectual dark webbers, by the way, he was the one who penned the uh the Google memo. And I'll admit I did not read the memo, but I read a lot about it. Um, essentially, I think wrote a memo stating here are all the reasons why you know men might be uh, better than women uh, for, for for you know for programming roles. Now I, I think his message was misguided to some extent, um, but what he stated in there is that um, why are we trying to achieve equality of outcome? Why are we trying to achieve let's say for parity fifty fifty percent? Fifty percent of our, let's say, programmers are women. Fifty percent of our programmers are men. Um, maybe there are other reasons that uh, there are these differences, and those differences and those reasons are legitimate and fine. It's not, it, it, you know, it's not. We shouldn't necessarily try to force this. Um, and but that would be again me stating this in a faculty meeting. This would be anathema. right? Me, me stating that. Well, you know, I think uh, actually, uh, you know. There are differences in interests that men and women have, and men are attracted to X and women are attracted to Y. And um, why are we making so much about this this gap in uh, you know in STEM participation? Maybe maybe it's not so. Maybe it's not oppression. Maybe it's not uh, stereotyping. Maybe it's not um, you know some uh, stigma that's leading to this inequality of outcome. But it might actually be something as simple as women are interested in, in something different. And that's fine. Uh, and, and again, so this is something again that you know, uh, you know, James Damore said this. Uh, 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 Jordan Peterson has stated this. And but again, this would be. I wouldn't state this in an, in in a faculty meeting. I wouldn't state this in a in in a in a conference because I would be I'll be rejected. Right. Yeah. I and I think that's a great example of something that like most people outside of those kind of like narrow circles would find like totally unobjectionable. And in fact, even those like very people, so like academics, um, when uh, Joris and I wrote this paper about, um, you know, how do people feel about conservatives and social psych? Like we read up on this debate, which was not started by us. It was started by uh, John Haidt. And there were a lot of folks who were like, well, you know, probably people who have more conservative leanings are interested in other things. And so we see this disparity because people are choosing to not go into social psychology. They're choosing to go to business. And it's like, okay, I believe that that's true, actually. But like, that's an argument that you feel perfectly comfortable making there. You would not feel perfectly comfortable making when somebody's like, well, why are there so few female computer scientists? 
So again, it's you know it's it's a very selective kind of application um, of different explanations for phenomena. Um, so yeah, I think that like if these people, the intellectual dark web folks, are kind of forcing like a reckoning with these sorts of double standards or or with things that you know we all maybe uh, have a problem with or have concerns about, but like don't feel comfortable talking about, then I, I think that's a that is a service. Yeah, I I, I agree. I think if, if they are talking about these things in a responsible way, um, yeah, I think it's a good thing as well. Um, and you know, they have other they there there are other kind of like issues that are uh, that they that are, that they're grieved about. But I think that's 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 a great one because it's such a I think it's such a divide uh, among let's say far leftists and and let's say even not even far right actually. People are not in the far left, according to what you know. Um, the uh, the stats you had mentioned. It seems like uh, most people are okay with there being differences, and you know, let you know, let interest you know drive your uh, what you do. And you know, inequality is determined by many many things. It's not purely about oppression. It's not purely about uh, you know someone pushing you down. Now, that's not to deny that that doesn't happen. It certainly does, especially with certain groups. But uh, but I think they're they're saying there are multiple reasons why these things occur, and it's not so simple as hey, I'm being oppressed by the patriarchy. Um, yeah, yeah. So this is where I wish we had somebody like Tejan to like really like defend this point of view adequately. Like you know, I, I, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you're picking like two like center-ish, center-left yeah, uh, exactly. uh, folks to uh, defend uh, right these views. right. So that's tough, right? Like so, you might say like, okay, of course, sometimes it's going to be the result of um, people's uh, individual choices to go do something else. But like, certainly we know that there's discrimination in some cases. Absolutely. Right. And, and so doesn't it make sense to focus on eliminating that discrimination when we can? And then I think people on the right say, well, but what you're doing is you're taking these statistical disparities as like in and of themselves evidence of discrimination. Like we don't know that that's the case. So yeah, it's a, it's a complicated issue on which, um, I do think that some of the IDW folks are right that in certain segments of the left, we have like a very simplistic answer to that. Any disparity is discrimination. And yeah. that can't possibly be right. Well, I mean, yeah, that's, that, I think that's true only if you belong to certain groups, right? So if you're, you, you know, right. you, you just talked about inequality among conservatives and liberals on college campuses. Oh, no, that's just, you know, uh, differences in interest. Um, that's not uh, some sort of situational oppression. Um, and I actually probably agree with, with it not being necessarily oppression, although I think that also plays into it, but not nearly as much as, you know, I think just self-selection to some extent. Um, but that's also, I think, you know, I think what you said earlier is is bang on. There's a double standard. Some groups, if they if, if they are experiencing inequality of outcome, it you know, I think the natural inclination on the left is to say, hey, there is uh, some systematic pressures that, you know, uh, point to the patriarchy. Um, whereas other groups are like, ah, whatever. You know, they're, uh, they're just self-selecting out of it. Um, I think to be intellectually honest and to be intellectually, you know, to have, uh, to be consistent, I think you need to apply the same lens to both those inequalities and say, hey, there's probably a little bit of both in, 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 in all these cases. Yeah, man, that is so difficult to do. The more we talk about this stuff, I'm struck by like just how easy it is to like opportunistically, you know, use different standards of evidence or like different modes of explanation depending on you know who the groups in question are right so if it's a question of like disadvantages accruing to a group that i'm sympathetic to um then it's a lot easier to explain that in terms of systematic discrimination than if it's uh disadvantages to a group i don't like yeah um, boy. motivated motivated reasoning man it's a bitch it's just you're never gonna get rid of it yeah so like yeah. how do you know yeah i mean it's really 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 hard yeah um to get you know, to be uh yeah to be perfectly rational and unbiased. I mean, we can't. We're, we're, we're humans and we're biased creatures. And I think we have to just, every once in a while, pause, you know, sit back and be, okay, like what, you know, why do I believe what I believe? Uh, did, I, did I have uh, uh, beliefs to begin with that are driving me towards um, this thing, um, towards this conclusion? 
Um, I think you see that a lot, even like with criticism, you know, I, I think that you see that with criticism of the intellectual dark web. I mean, so I, I think we've criticized them quite a bit here. Um, but I think I, I, I saw knee jerk reactions, uh, on Twitter where people had an opinion already. They never even heard of the intellectual dark web, but like they saw an article written by Barry Weiss, oh, it must be bad. Um, and then, of course, you know, the, the, you know, the opinion comes first. This, this is all John hate, you know, um, intuition drive, you know, re, uh, reasoning after the fact. Um, they have the opinion and then they kind of justify it after the fact. Um, and that happens, you know, all the way down. Yep. Um, yep. Yep. And Twitter is, of course, the worst for that because you feel compelled to respond immediately in 280 characters, which is <laughs> not, right. not good for nuance. Oh, man. Uh, is this a good place to call it? We are at, uh, boy, nearly two hours here. Oh, my God. Really? Wow. You know, the champagne of beer, uh, beers, sorry, plural. Treating you well. Uh, it's drinkable. Uh-huh. Um, and I feel, I feel more drunk now than I was at the beginning. I also feel more drunk now than I was in probably any, any of our other episodes. So, uh, I probably self-disclosed uh, or, or, or revealed my true self more than I would have otherwise. That's what the audience wants, Mickey. They do. They want to see the, you know, the ugliness of, of, of the real me. It's, it's beautiful in there. <laughs> <laughs> Don't you let anybody tell you otherwise. All right. Is this a, a good place to... To end it yeah i think it is okay so uh well um i guess last plug uh follow us on twitter at four beers pod oh people always say rate us on itunes so uh yeah please subscribe rate us on itunes Are we on itunes we're going to be we're going to be we're I'm not so, yet on i'm so excited that that's going to happen i just so many people like i listen to a lot of podcasts and it's always like plugging itunes and i'm like i am one of those people now this is like uh i feel i've achieved something here <laughs> if you die tonight, you know, it, it like you could die happy.